So we know the drill. This is how we will, the format that we will use. Uh, our presenter is uh, uh, Peter Williams. So that it refreshes our minds when we're dealing with. Then Karis will respond to him. Then they will have about 10 or 15 minutes to work between the two of them, and they will open up for everybody to uh, ask questions, either of Karis or of Peter. Does that is that an agreeable? Doesn't matter if it's agreeable or not. <laughs> What's happening? This is. Uh, this is uh, not democracy. <laughs> May work in other places, doesn't work in other places. <laughs> so, this is the way to do it. So, Peter, why don't you Grand. Uh, and give your sort of a summary and then carries. Okay, thank you. Um, so, uh, natural theology is really the sort of area that I specialised in my philosophical training. And although I dabble in other things, it's an area I keep coming uh, back to. And um, in recent years, I've put uh, some amount of time and effort into looking at the so-called argument from desire, uh, an argument made particularly famous um, by C.S. Lewis's work on it uh, in the 20th century, although he was by no means the only 20th century um, Christian thinker to be thinking along those lines and was, in doing so, standing in a a long historical tradition that you could trace um, back to perhaps uh, Augustine uh, or uh, even um, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O Lord, uh, in the Bible. Um, and I've been noticing that um, commentators upon the argument, and it's being more discussed by both um, more prominent atheist and theistic thinkers in recent years, uh, partly, I think, due to the, the popularity uh, of Lewis continuing to, to grow, um, that they tend to analyse it and say, well, here's the form that I really think the argument should take. Um, so particularly Alistair McGrath um, has published quite a lot on uh, Lewis recently because of the 50th anniversary of his death, and he did a new biography of him and a companion book of sort of essays uh, on aspects of Lewis's scholarly work. And Alistair McGrath um, says, really the argument from desire is a sort of inferential, best fit kind of argument. And then he goes on to sort of give his version of it. Um, Well, I think that tells us more about the kind of apologetic approach that Alistair McGrath prefers than it does tell us about what C.S. Lewis thought about the argument or about the the argument itself. And so I... Uh, have um, in a recent uh, debate book that's coming out next month edited by Gregory Basham um, uh, he invited me to defend the argument for desire in that book and I've distinguished um, five different versions of the argument inspired by Lewis's writings that one might give uh, and I think there's something in each of those versions and that taken together as a, as a cumulative uh, case um, that then makes the whole thing stronger overall so I'm, I'm 
uh, quite a maximalist by conviction in natural theology. Uh, and I think it tend, you tend to notice that these arguments do come in families. They, you know, there's no such thing as the cosmological argument, the design argument, and so on. Why should that be any different with the argument from desire? I think there is a family of arguments from desire, many of which go from um, this particular sort of romantic experience of joy that, that Lewis so well describes and evokes, sometimes in his, his fiction as well. Um, but there are uh, other desires... That, that one can point to uh, to, to root for different versions um, of the argument. Yes, thanks for your paper. Thank awesome. you. Um, so as I approached this, I was hearkened back to my philosophy days in undergrad, where we read um, P.F. Strauss, Strassen's Freedom and Resentment, 1972. Have you guys read his article? And um, he brings up the idea of something called reactive attitudes. So human beings swim in a sea of expectations that are normative. And so we have attitudes that respond to humans differently than we do when we're responding to inanimate objects, or even humans who um, have malfunctioning cognitively. So he says, for example, you can be on a bus and someone steps on your toe, and you turn around and think, um, you immediately throw up the expectation and a kind of a, a, an evaluated response. Is this person normal? Um, is he mentally deranged? Is it a child? Like we're, we're, do, we're making all these measurements to see what is norm, normative and what isn't. Um, or if it was a dog. And so if it's a dog, we respond differently. We have a different kind of emotion than we would if um, we're responding to an adult who did it maliciously. So I thought, okay, as I'm approaching C.S. Lewis and this emotion that he calls joy... Um, I began to ask whether this was universal human experience because um, he places himself inside the romantic tradition, Zen Zucht, and that to me um, seemed to be very different than the Christian tradition where we're using joy to respond to a person and not to respond to a beautiful landscape. So I'll just read out my um, point one and point two, uh, point one, point two, and point three, and then we can all launch a discussion. Um, so, are we all experiencing the same thing? Williams writes that the experience of joy is natural to humanity, and so we can point out similarities in experiences of the numinous centuries apart, and I think of Rudolf Otto, Idea of the Holy, Wordsworth's Prelude, Miss Graham's Wind in the Willows, where um, rat and mole meet um, the creature Pan and are kind of struck um, by the sense of awe. But then I started to think maybe we should be drawing tighter distinctions. So I like the idea that um, a desire for something more, or this transcendent fulfillment desire, is also itself a desire for God. But it became clear that these were very um, different things, perhaps. And um, so there's different as the emotional response is triggered by the beauty of nature, or to the emotional response is triggered by encountering a person. The German romantics called their reaction to nature Zenzucht, but the human aesthetic response is different to the kind of interpersonal feeling we get in the presence of a person. So I think there could be something narrower to this experience of joy that we might call distinctly theistic um, that separates it from a longing for the sublime which doesn't specify an object or person um, but is responding to something beautiful. Mm. Um, so I thought maybe this could bring us beyond the doors um, or to the door of a specific version of theism and not just theism in general because we have a lot of 
um, kinds of versions of theism where there's not a personal God at the center. And so Williams writes that although the experience of joy doesn't provide much metaphysical specificity, it can still contribute to the cumulative case of theism. But if joy can be shown to be an interpersonal emotion and something distinct from the emotional response to art, an emotion that requires a person as its intention object, then perhaps we're able to eliminate theistic frameworks that do not have a personal God at the center. And you do move in this direction when you eliminate um, pantheistic nirvana. Um, so it seems we have reasons to eliminate certain frameworks because of the way that this desire is designed. Um, mm. In your example, joy expects satisfaction, so perhaps we can take a slightly different move or um, move in this direction by saying that joy is a kind of desire that expects satisfaction by a person, um, which would distinguish it from the romantic longing. So I think that understanding the nature of joy could explain why theism is the only solution and perhaps nuance McGrath's argument when he says that joy is not really an argument for the existence of God in the strict sense. But I'm saying that if joy is this kind of desire that requires satisfaction through personal agency, then God would be the essential condition for the satisfaction of this kind of human desire. And then um, your section on nature makes nothing in vain um, was really good, but I was wondering why Basham and critics didn't address mm. the problem of evil um, in their disteleological case mm. against theism. Um, okay. So, yeah. <clears throat> right, so... I think it's useful to try and draw the distinction between um, the usual sort of argument from religious experience, uh, which I would characterize as, as uh, arguments from um, putatively positive experience of the divine, let's say, um, from the argument from desire, which is almost a sort of argument from negative, a sort of negative experience in a sense uh, it's not so much that um, in the sort of romantic experience of the beauty of the landscape and so on one is having a numinous experience that is then best argued to be an experience of the divine or of the beauty of God or something you're saying it isn't not okay. no but rather that that experience of that beauty is the, the trigger or the occasion for um, the, the recognition in oneself of a, des of a desire um, that is kind of triggered by that occasion but not fulfilled by it, not fulfilled by the thing that you are positively experiencing um, but that is um, so to say, best explained by saying that this is an innate desire that does point to um, the existence of God. A person. Yeah, yeah. So I, I agree. Um, uh, maybe you could put a sort of eliminative uh, kind of argument. But so, you know, going along lines of, of saying, um, if we take the, the sort of phenomenology, if you like, of, of joy seriously. Um, as you say, it couldn't be fulfilled by a pantheistic reality or by a naturalistic uh, reality. And thus that 
although it's not a positive experience of a personal theistic reality, it's an experience of a desire that one would either either have to have to dismiss and sort of debunk the desire, as it were, or follow it towards. Yeah, this this desire must point me towards a a personal theistic reality, and then um, you know there are various different ways of of trying to kind of cash that out. So um, I, I think it. it helps to try and clarify that difference between the sort of immediately positive religious experience arguments and what's going on in, in the sort of triggering of noticing this innate desire. Now, innate desires don't have to be universally expressed uh, in humanity. And obviously, space limitations prevent me from going in too much, but I spend more time in the, in the longer papers at looking on uh, how what one might distinguish conceptually between sort of n- natural or innate desires and ones that are not, because I think that is a very crucial um, distinction. Like the subjective, um, distinction. subjective fantasy desires. Yeah, so, right. So um, um, Basham's objection of, well, these are just... Right. Not that I, that I think that's a particularly, um, in the end, forceful objection, because, as I say, um, Basham... One of his, his objections is, no, you can't, you can't really satisfactorily draw this distinction between innate and non-innate desires. And here's a whole list of sort of fantasy desires that, isn't it obvious, these are um, widespread, you know, human desires, but they're not the sort of innate desire that you can count on as pointing towards the possibility of fulfilment. And then he gives sort of a whole list of, of desires for things which actually all do have the possibility of, fulf- of fulfilment, uh, at least the majority of them. So um, I, I don't think it's a particularly in, injurious sort of objection to the argument. Um, Tolkien, in his um, essay on fairy tales, lists mm. those very same things as well. Right, yes, he, he, he passion draws on, yeah. on some, of, some of Tolkien. The desire to communicate with... Non-human beings, a desire to have superhuman powers, a desire to yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, you know, we say yeah, you can communicate with non non-human. <laughs> there are non-human persons, and you can communicate with them. Um, that actually does point in that. Well, I not think it points in that direction. What it's actually doing is, is, I think, sort of presupposing a naturalistic worldview is true. <laughs> But that's begging the question against the, the argument from desire rather than properly uh, objecting um, to it. What, what I'd be particularly interested in, in hearing you dis- discuss more um, is um, your, your uh, footnote three um, from your paper. Could we not take oh, a, no, a, I... you know, a slightly different move and try and argue that joy, this joy experience, is, is the kind of desire that expects satisfaction by a person uh, we'd need to discuss theories of emotion, etc., but I can't do that here. So could you do that here? Because I'd, well, I'd love to, to hear more on that. what my PhD is on, not right. specifically, but um, the idea of what passions are hmm. in the 17th century. Um, and everything people talk about is in relation to their sensitive appetites and their rational appetites and how reason, what we call emotion, reason and passion actually blends such that reason can be hmm. emotional and hmm. emotions can be rational. Hmm. Um, so we grew up in this very weird age where we separate between mind and heart. Yeah. Um, and even in Paul's letter in Colossians, we got into this really big 
debate after church because um, the NIV. I'm going on a bit of a rabbit trail. The NIV translates it as um, sets your mind on things above, and then the next verse it says heart. But actually, in the Greek, mm. it's both noose and of course heart in Greek is splachna, which just means intestines. Yeah. Um, so they have very strange Valentine's plans. <laughs> but um, so I, I don't mm. I, I don't have an answer to this yet. But I wanted it to launch discussion, maybe in the direction of the P.F. Strauss and reactive attitudes, mm. um, such that. We, we experience an emotion differently when we're responding to a person mm. than we do when we're responding to something beautiful in yeah. the landscape. But then I like, your, I like your qualification when you're saying that the romantic tradition is perhaps um, this beginning stage or what triggers us in the direction of this pursuit of a person. Yeah. Which makes me think there's a, there's a link between creation and creator very strongly. Mm, mm. Um, so when I'm looking at a painting in the National Art Gallery, we live about 10 minutes away from that in Chancery Lane, um, I'm wondering about who this artist is as I'm experiencing his art. So perhaps in the same way, we're responding to a landscape mm. and there's a person behind the material fabric of this world that we're thinking about. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this might be a bit of a side trip, but that, that makes me think of, of sort of arguments from from beauty that are sort of parallel to arguments from morality, mm. where, where you're kind of saying, I'm recognising a beauty in this landscape, and I think that's an objective reality just as much as moral yeah. values are objective. Uh, and that the that just parallel to the moral argument suggests an objective standard, a transcendent objective standard of beauty. Um, so... Um, that there is a whole sort of line of argument there. Yeah. Also, what you're saying reminds me of uh, back to um, Lewis's autobiography, "Surprised by Joy," um, and he starts and begins with this experience, and he comes back at the end of his autobiography, uh, sort of says, "And you might sort of be asking, and what about joy? What happens to this?" And he sort of says, "Well, now that I'm a Christian, um, it's not that I don't have the experience." Uh, as often as I used to, I think I think I do. It it just doesn't sort of figure as large in my in my thought life, um, because um, I think I've sort of found Jerusalem. When you haven't found Jerusalem, noticing a signpost that points that way is a really big deal. And everyone gathers around the signpost and goes, oh, "Look, here's the signpost. Look, it's pointing that way." But now I am at Jerusalem. Um, so he's sort of saying, experientially. Um, he had this desire that seemed to him to sort of point beyond himself if he didn't debunk it, took it seriously, um, pointed beyond himself. But now when he became a Christian, he found uh, a positive religious experience that seemed to at least partially satiate that desire. So it, it, it's like um, being hungry for the first time, if you like. And, and saying, oh, I've got this desire for... for so, what's, what's that? This, this smell of, oh, oh, what, you know, what is that? And tracing it to the kitchen and finding, oh, what, 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 what's this? Mmm, um, yeah, the food, food, that's what, you know, matches this desire. But I'm still hungry because there's not enough here. But now I know what it is that answers to this desire. So you don't have to sort of satiate the desire, um, in order to know what it is that answers the desire. Uh, and so that sort of brings together the, the sort of negative argument from desire and the positive religious experience argument, yeah. and, and sort of the way in which they, again, in a broader sort of cumulative case, kind of reinforce each other 
because uh, you sort of arrive at the same endpoint uh, from different directions. of the absurdum one, that, that is being more specific about what's going on in the argument than saying it's a, it's a deductive argument, but you're, you're, you're quite right in the other... So I would use another name for the deductive then, like the um, what, is, what is it again, like superfluity or um, in, in vain? I mean, that's the crucial Yeah, point yeah. They're both deductive. Um, yes. Uh, that's, that's a good point. So the, the, the name could be more informative of what's actually going on in there. Um, yes, yeah, so can I make a suggestion? Mm, please do. So I think you do have an abductive argument. I think you have an inductive argument, which is the inferential one. Mm. It's inductive. And then I think you have three deductive arguments. The Lieber one is about an epistemic principle. Mm -hmm. um, the, what you call the deductive one is about a principle about invaneness. Uh, or superfluity, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, the third deductive one is about is a reductional absurdity. Or it's not a reductional absurdity, it's, it's well, the premise about absurdity. Mm -hmm. so, so that one might be a way to recategorize the. It's making them stand out. Yeah, yeah. That, that's interesting as well, because I, I hadn't particularly thought about, I mean, in the a priori one, it's more that I was sort of defending a, um, if you have this experience, you're within your rights to take it at face, face value uh, kind of approach, to sort of take this as a properly basic um, thing that you can do. 
But, if, but, but of course, Alice Wimber, you can, you can also then take it, as I say, the epistemic principle and actually think it through as an, as an argument that's based on that epistemic principle as well. So that, in, in, in a sense, it's sort of five arguments and a defence of just taking this as properly basic. So that's sort of six approaches uh, rather than um, the, the five as well, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, thank you. It's, it's, it's worth putting some, um, some, some thought into some more informative titles, yeah. Potentially, um, and that um, there are some innate desires that are universal because they're innate desires for things that are related to survival. Um, so the desire to have food, or liquid, or you know, uh, is both innate and universal. Um, but it doesn't disqualify a desire from being innate if it isn't universal. So it can be innate without being um, universal. Um, and obviously once you get away from desires that are necessary to existence, um, that's where you're going to find um, 
things that are innate but not necessarily universal. So, uh, for example, I, I, I think um, humans have an, an innate ability to develop language. Um, but it's not that every human being universally has that ability, because if they are um, orphaned in the wild and brought up by wolves like Romulus and Remus or you know, whatever, they won't develop um, linguistic um, ability. So things can be innate to human nature uh, without being universally expressed or uh, experienced by every token of human nature, as it were. Um, so I would argue that um, this experience that Lewis is talking about um, is, is, is innate. It comes from within human nature. Um, it is, uh, I think, a good indication of that is that it is uh, very widely, if not universally, experienced, that it's experienced um, cross-culturally, that it's experienced across historical periods, um, so it would be, seem to be hard to explain as being um, specific to the conditions of a particular culture uh, or time. Um, it seems to be more to do with what human beings are, wherever and whenever they are. But it doesn't need to be something that is universally experienced in order to qualify as being innate. You're satisfied? Mm. Okay. Maybe I can comment that mm. I don't know whether you are familiar with the philosophy of doing it. Mm. There's a Christian philosopher in the Netherlands. And he would state in this case that every human being has the capability to function in all the type of, let's mm. say, higher functions, but that they, they, they have to be disclosed. Right. And the same holds. For example, for uh, the capability for spirituality mm. and for mm. enjoying uh, aesthetics, when it is not disclosed, it will not function, it will not flower. Mm. And in my experience, that, that notion of disclosure is a very fruitful mm. notion. A notion. Maybe it's also very fruitful. Yeah, this something time. to tie in. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, my remark is following up on what said, so maybe it's just a good moment. Um, there was a discussion on the distinction between the experience of the beauty of nature. Mm -hmm. I would say it's not the beauty of nature, but it's the grandeur of nature. It's not necessarily the same. Uh, and the, the joy, uh, the, well, the joy of experiencing God. Mm. Um, and, and I think the reference to romanticism uh, should take into account the cultural situation. And this is what I miss a bit from this discussion. Mm. Mm, I mean, the way we experience things is culturally shaped, yep. to some extent. Yep. And the romantics, of course, were protesting mm. against the rationalism and the mm. control orientation of the time before, of mm. the 70s. Uh, so they tried to escape from that yep. idea that we are just closed in the material world. Mm. Uh, and I, I think, in my view, it's a first step. No, it's the, the first stages step towards, yeah. towards mm. joy. And, and you mentioned in your point three, your, your low three, uh, it, 
what is the personal uh, issue of why is the difference if it's a person mm. enjoy to me it could be but I'd like your reactions both mm. um, that people want to be appreciated by somebody who knows mm. to whom you can be related and ultimate mm. appreciation of our being mm. is only possible by the ultimate personality of the divine so uh, and that's beyond mm. Uh, mm. an experience of this, the ownness the numinous which we can have in yeah. nature but the numinous experience i think can be as you said also mm. i think can certainly be a preparation and mm. can be uh, yeah. on yes. the way to the other one very in my view. Um, and now one more technical remark is related to this, that nature may not seem in vain and also the other one on nature. I wonder whether you not too much equate nature with creation. Nature is fallen creation. And I'm not sure that nature as fallen creation mm. is not making anything in vain. Mm. Is in vain. And in what sense? I mean I'm not I, 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 I'm not I follow the argument, it's an interesting argument, mm. and the cumulative evidence I, I, I like, uh, but I have a question here whether this really is a strong argument. Mm. Thank you. Um, so, go first? Or well, I'll just to... comment on, yeah, um, yeah very briefly, because I think you're right, we have to understand a historical situation, and Charles Taylor um, in Sources of the Self um, brings, really criticizes this tradition excellently. But, I, I, so you're saying there's stages to this desire, and perhaps joy is the beginning stage that eventually um, yeah. ends in satisfaction of a person because all people um, innately have this desire to be known and appreciated. Okay. Um, and I was wanting to slice the pie a bit more sharply and actually keep the distinction and not go with the stage theory because I thought that the romantics um, were actually quite atheistic and secular. And they, they, they were so lamenting, the you're right, they were, but they were lamenting the loss of meaning in a material world. Yeah. But they were kind of the English versions of the French existentialists. So, th so they were kind of... Take Novalis. Hmm? Take Novalis. I haven't read him, sorry. Well, it's a German. Okay. So I think it's a certain atheist. Yeah. So, so I, I think... One of the top of the romanticism in Germany. Yeah. So I don't think they were looking for a person at the end of this desire, the romantics and the Zengzuk tradition. And I thought, so I thought the Christian phenomenology of joy is different. But you're right to say, I, I mean, I think, I think joy is innate because we're all longing, and they don't know it, but mm. I, wanted to, I wanted to cut a finer distinction. Right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're right, of course, it comes into this discussion the, 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 with the sort of phenomenology of, of, of joy of the romantic experience of is it something that is to be debunked from the outside hmm. or something that's to be trusted from the inside. And I, and I look at Lewis's distinction from meditation in a tool shape of look, looking at the beam of light or looking along it. Uh, and he talks there about how... Um, you know, if, if the ethnographer looks at the, the tribe doing the, the rain dance kind of thing, um, do we look um, from the inside perspective um, of their sort of worldview belief about what's going on, or do we, as the sort of Westerner, look, look at it from the outside and, and, and sort of give it a reductive explanation um, rather than the explanation that they themselves would, would give? And how do we prioritise those? Um, and... Uh, 
uh, he talks a little bit about about that sort of debate, and, and I think um, since Lewis's day, um, thinking has, has has moved us on to a stage where we we can go with more of the discussions about sort of principles of of credulity uh, and so on, and, and say that actually we that there is a reason for putting the the the, the burden of proof upon the reductive reductive explanations of things um, so that we prima facie go with the, the inner experience rather than the sort of reductive materialist explanations and, and thus um, to look a long joy rather than to uh, as, as Bachman so on does trying you know, oh let's give it an evolutionary psychological kind of explaining uh, a way of it um, I, I would also say I, I, although we're focusing a lot on the discussion of joy and because of Lewis's emphasis upon that, um, but even Lewis talks about he he says that the in, innate desire uh, for the afterlife he talks about, and mm-hmm. uh, I talk in the paper about other um, innate desires just as you've been talking about that are more more specifically as Karis was saying person centric. Mm-hmm. So, um, do we have an, an innate desire for justice to alt- have the ultimate last word? for there to be the possibility of, of forgiveness for my sins, and so on. And again, if you trust those, those are specifically, could only be fulfilled by a, by a person. Do we have a, a desire that life has an objective purpose to it? Again, there couldn't be a purpose unless there was a purposer, mm. which, which is an inherently personalistic notion. And so on. So, those, I think a lot of those tie in with the sort of ad absurdum version of the argument when you say we actually have a whole plethora of um, existentially deep and relevant desires that seem to be central to the conception of, of true human flourishing. That you end up either saying life is a big joke with the existentialists like Camus, life is absurd because we have these really deep existential desires for all sorts of things that could only be answered by something like a, a transcendent God in, a, in an afterlife with him. Um, but actually, there is nothing in reality that answers to those desires. And, and, or, actually, there is. Uh, and you face this sort of existential dilemma um, with it. But uh, one question for you, Peter, it's, um, to me it's a bit puzzling and that you talked about in the paper, the, the argument as an a priori argument, mm. uh, also in light of the discussion so, so far, because we are talking all the time about uh, what do people experience, mm. is something universal. So, could you mm. elaborate a little bit about how is it possible to talk about a priori and still see it? It, it seems like experience, you experience, mm. so essential. Yeah, and um, thank you. I, I've already once before been, been, been pulled up on the terminology, and perhaps I, I need to put more thought into uh, um, the, the names given to these arguments. Uh, I guess my, my thought was more that I, I, I'm not really in the first case, laying out an argument 
based on experience and the combination of that experience with some thought about an epistemic principle to lead to a conclusion. You, you, can, you can do that. Just as in positive religious experience arguments a Alice Swinburne, you can say, you know, here are these experiences, here is this principle, I'm putting this into an argument that leads you to trusting that experience and taking it seriously, uh, and so on. I, I, I was thinking of myself more of making a sort of uh, move a la, a la Plantinga of, of sort of saying, if you, if you find yourself with this experience, you're, you're completely within your rights just to, to follow it. And you don't have to have uh, some sort of argument based on the experience in order to take it seriously. Um, so that's what I'm, I'm trying to get at. And perhaps there's a better way of me saying it in the, in the nomenclature. Yeah, thank you. This comes down to the, uh, the sort of, am I trusting what this experience seems to be like from the inside? That it's an, that because it's a a desire that that the experience is of a desire for something. I might not be sure quite what that something is, but it's a desire for something, and the it's the debunking kind of approach that wants to say I know it seems to be a desire for something but it's it's just a meaningless feeling mm -hmm. um, uh, that's it's just an illusion to be sort of explained away um, and that the thought is that it's reasonable to, to trust 
yeah. the phenomenology of this being an outwardly pointing to something experience. It's not a, 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 a positive or very specific experience of what it is that my experience is pointing at, but it is an experience of I'm, I'm engaged in a, in a relation to something, and I'm looking for, I'm, I'm expecting, because I have this experience, I'm just naturally expecting that I, that I could find what that something is. Um, because I have the experience, I naturally expect, okay, I don't know what is going to fulfill this, but I'm going to go and look. I would bother going and trying to fulfill this experience naturally, rather than thinking to myself, oh, this is probably just a meaningless emotional, you know, <laughs> hubbub. Um, and that the priority of, of kind of trust of one's experience means that the burden of proof is on the person who wants to say, no, it is just a meaningless, it's not pointing to anything. Why do you think he doesn't want to argue from religious experience? Because he's putting this under a priori argument? No, because uh, the taker wants the argument from desire to be an additional argument. Yeah, I, I mean, I want it to be an additional argument to the, so the, argument, uh, from the argument from re- positive religious experience, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's, this is just the same argument as... Yeah. yeah. Okay, now, this is a we have 10 minutes, so uh, we have number two, and then uh, number three is up as well. So, two, uh, excuse me, two, yes. Okay. Uh, thank you for the papers, we really enjoyed my uh, meeting, and uh, especially also the uh, response, taking the argument further uh, about joy being specifically a religious um, desire, uh, interpersonal emotion. And um, I think it's really helpful um, when we think about um, uh, the idea of reimagining uh, apologetics mm. and not just focusing on reason, but also uh, imagination. And people uh, need to also feel uh, what we're saying, not only understand what we're mm. saying. Mm. And for desires a good uh, way to, uh, to, to reimagine uh, apologetics mm. in this way. It taps uh, into that.
mm. uh, human beings with, uh, for joy, for human flourishing. But um, I was thinking, how about um, those who actually think that desire is just um, super venient uh, yeah. on uh, the chemical uh, yeah. reactions or something uh, on the material. So I think in that, um, in that sense, this argument from the cycle would be uh, Yes, I, I think, I mean, that comes back to the central issue of do you debunk the experience or not, um, uh, going to some sort of evolutionary psychology explanation or whatever. But I, I think fundamentally that's to beg the question against the argument. Um, and, and as I point out in the section on this, I don't think the sort of evolutionary psychological explanations or debunking explanations are, are particularly strong. And even um, Basham, in his, in his critique of the argument, kind of admits as much. much. And he's drawing on um, Weilenberg, Weilenberg as well, who tries to take this route. Um, and sort of the best that you can come up with is, is a sort of a just, a, a just so story that might explain um, why we have this kind of feelings about things, um, why that well, might explain why we have it, given that it arose somehow in the first place. Um, but it doesn't seem to me anyone actually proposes any sort of evolutionary explanation of why it would arise, be likely to arise, this kind of emotion. And I think I, I even give an argument for why it might actually be an evolutionary disadvantage <laughs> were such a thing to, to, to arise. So you, you could take its existence as a sort of anti-evolutionary argument, if you like. Um, so, plus the fact that I'm not particularly sold... It, on the evolution, but I'm not, I'm not sold on the underlying naturalism. It would be to say, um, even if you can give a, a mechanistic explanation of how come we have these feelings, just like in the moral argument, if someone tries to say, oh, well, you know, our evolutionary past explains why it is I feel um, revolted by the idea of rape or incest. That's just because it was evolutionary dis- disadvantageous to your ancestors, well, unless you add, and that's all that's going on, unless you then add a, and naturalism is true, because you need to exclude the, yeah, and there's a God who designed that, proce- that materialistic process of evolution such that it would end up with me feeling that way, and that feeling does correspond to the moral facts of the situation. Um, so, really the attempt to give an evolutionary explaining away of, of the moral case or the, the joy case, I think, ends up relying upon a question-begging assumption of naturalism. Thank you. Uh, um, um, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's B, not the three or <laughs> <laughs> The three, they, they're not so but go ahead. Uh, my question is, uh, René Girard talks about mimetic rivalry, that desire arises in us when we see someone else desire something. Mm. So in, in that sense, I don't know if you would say that, but we mm. have false, not, or at least not innate desires. What if this desire that we are talking about is not an innate denial, desire, but maybe there was one person who had this desire innately and he evolved in it that. Mm. Would the argument still stand if, it, if 
there was only one person experiencing that innate desire? Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I, th I think you could, because you could say um, there is an instance of this desire that is innate. Um, innate desires tend to have uh, uh, external objective reference. Um, therefore, this one probably, that one probably does. So that the number of examples in one of your premises doesn't necessarily matter particularly at least just some ways of constructing the argument. Um, but I wouldn't particularly buy as plausible the suggestion that um, you know, maybe it was innate in one person and then it, all, all the rest of us have kind of mimicked it. It certainly wasn't, you know, Lewis's um, experience as a child, he talks about sort of um, a little model garden that his brother Warney made and gave him his first sort of numinous experience or experiencing the Casterly Hills uh, and the sort of the beauty of nature and so on. He, it, it just, it wasn't, oh, I saw my brother Warney having these experiences and that triggered me having them. It was just directly, I, I saw the world <laughs> and this is what I experienced. And then I suddenly wanted to make sense of, of that experience. And I think uh, if we sort of ponder our own experience of, of these things I, I think it's implausible uh, to think that um, this is a, a, along the sort of uh, the same sort of desires as the sort of desires that might be inculcated in me by watching enough advertising on television that I now have a desire for a particular brand of trainer or something because <laughs> I've been convinced that it's cool by the, the fantastic advertising people. I, I just think it doesn't seem to me like that kind of inculcated desire. Mm. 
So, so maybe you could use a practical principle rather than a metaphysical principle mm. that gets you in a tough question. Yeah, that's an interesting line of thought. Um, yeah, I, so I don't think on premise one there, you're, you're not saying um, because I believe in a purposer behind nature uh, who has a certain character, therefore I think that nature does nothing in vain. Here is a desire um, that can't be in vain because of premise one, therefore it must point to... So I don't think you're... That would be kind of explicitly question-begging. But as you say, it's fine to say, um, if it is true that nature makes nothing in vain, then some sort of theism follows. Well, fine, but then plenty of you know, arguments work that way. Uh, it may not be particularly convincing as a premise. I think particularly the sort of the modern zeitgeist is to think, oh, well, you know, Aristotle's clearly wrong about that. Modern science shows... You know, as Bashan as he would probably appeal to junk, junk DNA or um, the panda's thumb or uh, the human appendix or what have you. We know there's, there's lots, nature makes lots of useless things. Okay. Um, but as I say, A, actually those examples aren't as convincing as one might at first glance think. But as I, I get to at the end, the crucial distinction that Lewis himself actually makes, and then I think. It's plausible to, to, to think that even in the sort of Aristotelian tradition must be really what's, what's kind of being meant is about types of things rather than particular tokens. So, you know, um, Lewis says an individual man might starve to death. Um, so his, his desire for food, you might say, is, is, is in, in vain because it is never satisfied. Um, but the, the type of desire... <laughs> that um, the, this, in, this particular token of humanity has that desire does nevertheless show that there's a good indication that there is such a thing as, as, as food and um, eating it <laughs> and so on. Um, so if you, you take, as I've readjusted at the end there, to nature at least probably makes no type or, or even to, to weaken the argument a bit more Few, few types, you know, more, more types of things in nature than not are, are not in vain, then that will be sufficient to carry through some evidential force uh, of the argument. Um, and I don't think even, you know, Aristotle or Aquinas or that kind of tradition can have been ignorant of the fact that, that certain individual things in the world don't seem to reach their end form, as it were. Not every acorn becomes an oak tree. <laughs> uh, you know. So individual acorns can exist in vain, as it were. Um, but wouldn't it be an odd world in which there were acorns but no oak trees? <laughs> you know, that, that's more the, 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 the kind of thought there. And, and also, on the sort of question-begging point, so you could point to a, the, sort of the Aristotelian sort of idea of an, an innate teleology, natural teleology, or read Thomas Nagel's recent book about mind and cosmos, where his, as an atheist, although critiquing the standard sort of materialistic worldview and evolutionary explanations and so on, not wanting to go to a theistic worldview and struggling to kind of try and, and, and model out a sort of inherent teleological but natural teleological view, that, although not materialistic in the way that Atheists tend to put it now. Um, so someone of that kind of viewpoint um, 
could be moved by this kind of argument, perhaps. All right.